Learn more about the albums you love with Dissect, a music analysis podcast hosted by me, Cole Kushner, a lifelong musician and composer. Each season of Dissect dives deep into a single album, forensically dissecting the music, lyrics, and meaning of one song per episode. Our newest season is covering Tyler the Creator's Igor, a beautifully honest album in which Tyler explores love, communication, masculinity, and truth. Listen to Dissect today only on Spotify, because great art deserves more than a swipe. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. It is Thursday, December 7th. One of the defining stories of this year has been the end of peak TV, the content bubble that gave us 600 scripted TV shows a year. But less discussed is the impact of the end of this content bubble on movies, because it's similar. We're exiting a period where more movies have been produced per year than probably at any time since the heyday of the network made-for-TV movie in the 80s and 90s. Now, these movies may not go to theaters. The theatrical business has certainly changed, likely forever, coming out of COVID and streaming wars. But with Netflix making about 80 movies a year for its platform, and even a couple good ones, make fun of them, Apple and Amazon adding a dozen or so each, and the traditional studios doing the franchises and the pre-branded tentpoles, indie distributors trying to figure out how to stay in business, there's been a steady pipeline of movies for the past five to 10 years. Then the strikes hit, a bunch of movies got scrapped. Most of the companies have pulled back the end of free money and peak TV. Netflix is now pledging to make fewer, better movies. And even Disney, which ruled the box office pre-COVID, is saying the same thing. Everyone in Hollywood these days is bitching and looking back at the good old days, but I feel like I hear it more from the movie people and especially the indie movie people. Man, that is a tough business. you got to really love it or just have tons of money to do whatever you want. That's why I wanted to get Ted Hope in here. Ted really loves the movie business. He's produced about 70 films, overseen dozens more as a studio executive. And he was the co-head of movies at Amazon Studios for five years. He actually launched their film initiative. He won a bunch of Oscars for movies like Manchester by the Sea and The Big Sick. Needless to say, Ted's pretty pessimistic about the state of film these days. Interestingly, he blames the global streaming platforms in part, including his former employer, for a lot of these problems. So today, it's where is the movie business right now? Are the streamers helping or hurting? And what's the right path forward? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. We are here with Ted Hope. Welcome, Ted. Hello, great to be here, Matt. So let's get into it because I don't want this to be fully depressing and <laughs> negative, <laughs> but it's a really tough place for movies these days. And 
you have been writing about this on your Substack, and you've been talking about this for a while. Um, why are you so down on the prospects for the film business? What is the 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 big problem right now? Is it that the film business has largely shifted to streaming, where the streamers have enormous power over what gets bought and made. The audience has been trained to expect most of the non-event movies to debut on streaming. The model for streaming has been based on a buyout model where your global rights are bought by one company. They paid a premium that would get the film made and get everybody a profit on it. Now, coming out of the strikes, coming out of the end of the peak TV era, those premiums that the streamers are willing to pay have gone down, which in a sense is squeezing everybody. And there are now no alternatives because the audience has been trained to avoid theaters and look for this on streaming. And now the business is moving away from producers being able to make money on the streamers. So where does that leave everyone? Am I, am I characterizing your take accurately? You've got it really right. I would change some of the language because I think it it camouflages some of the truth, right? You know, this is the essence of predatory capitalism. It doesn't have to be the essence of business, right? Um, it's not, I wouldn't use the cuddly word of streamers. I would use global streaming platforms, right? That's what, what they are. And I wouldn't use the word premium. I would use predatory pricing. <laughs> well, this is funny coming from you because you worked at one of these companies and ran their film group for five years and were making the kinds of films that you like to make, these smaller independent style films for Amazon that you now say are being hurt by predatory pricing. Absolutely. Streaming itself, using that word, could be something entirely different than it is. What could it be? It could uh, work hand in hand with theatrical exhibition. Mm -hmm. It could work to to provide context. It could you know, so you actually understand a, a film's place in the culture and the 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 history that it does. So it doesn't feel just like tra a transaction. Mm -hmm. um, that that it could be based on curation. It could be based on discovery. It could be w based around the widest. Uh, breadth of perspectives it could be based on uh preservation it could be based based around um ultimately uh access to all what what you got in um you know it could be based on principles of democracy and what i believed capitalism was supposed to be about but instead well, but what's more democratic than paying for a prime subscription and getting all of these wonderful movies essentially for free well in America, you know, we've been uh, tremendously advantaged by a couple of things in, in the film business. You know, obviously the studio's cultural dominance, but also the fact that we are free to exploit each other and ourselves to the full extent that we would like to. You know, that, you know, movies are made on credit cards and people defer their salaries and thus we've had wide range of topics and approaches in cinema. And we've had a robust equity market to support it. That was, however, driven by a truly independent system that had many players, both domestically and even more so internationally. When the streamers took a global approach 
and were willing to pay a higher, excuse me, the global streaming platforms mm -hmm. took a took a, an approach where they were willing to price everyone else out of the market. The distributors, the territorial distributors in each markets got priced out of the game. Right. That's a key point there, where film used to be a territory-by-territory territory business where you would sell a film and the independent market into different countries they would each pay you a fee to exhibit the movie in that territory and you would ultimately make back sometimes pre-sales make back the budget before you make the movie and then oftentimes after the movie is made you sell it around the world and everybody makes a profit in his whole then the streamers come in and they want global rights and they are paying what was a premium for that privilege but now you say that's changed Right. And, and kind of twofold, like you captured the 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 territorial distribu distribution, which also included media sequencing across different plat, you know, platforms. that's windowing, windowing, meaning, you know, you get X amount for the theatrical rights, you get X amount for home video, you get, you know, you get to sell it in various windows. Which meant you got many bites at the apple. So attempts to grab the brass ring. That, that's been dismantled now. There are fewer buyers in every territory. They've been priced out of it, so they actually have to take less risk, right? As a seller, it reminds me of like 1992 when we had started Good Machine and it was about uh, bringing uh, authored work to territorial buyers across the, the, the globe. And ultimately was was just starting to to have new breath into the pre-sale market. People were willing to take risks on quote execution dependent film. And and why was that the case in early 90s? That was right as the independent movement was starting. There had been enough uh proven uh successes along the way. There was still a robust uh television market that underwrap underwrote uh, most of that acquisition for the territorial buyers. And home video. It was the VHS DVD era. And it was transitioning with the, a great discovery had been made, you know, i.e. price for sell through, you know, so that everyone was acquiring their own home libraries uh, of, of titles. And that, you know, ma made home video, which for the, the companies at the time that were still treating it on a royalty basis, only putting 20% or so into the pot, those distributors, you know, could make a fortune, you know, uh, across the different uh, media. Right. So streaming killed all that. Streaming collapsed all the windows into one, collapsed all the revenue streams into one, and everybody was okay with it for a while because the buyout was so good. Are you seeing those buyouts decline significantly now, especially post-strike? 100%. And it's but that was the plan all along, right? That was the streamer's plan. They disrupt the business get everybody to play along and, you know, take the free money or, or the, the outsized money and then slowly pull it back where they now own the changed business and can squeeze. Uh, no one ever said to me like that was the plan when I was at Amazon. <laughs> right, that was going to be my next question. Were you the architect of that plan? If you studied capitalism, you know, and you look, look, looked at trying to price people out of the market and you believed that you were playing to win and you wanted to get rid of the competition, indie, that indie ecosystem 
always worked as a course corrector, you know, and when they gambled and bet right, you know, they they became became a sustainable enterprise in A24 or something like that. You know, it's important to recognize that not only did it dismantle the, the sales opportunities, both in terms of territorial distributors and international sales companies, but it also dismantled our private equity resources, right? You know, I, I have a list, I think comparable to most of the agencies of over 250 private equity sources. When I look at it now, I think maybe four of them are real. And why is that? They're just not willing to bet against the global platforms. Well, you know, say say you you, you were born with a, a silver spoon in your mouth and you got as your trust fund, say, $40 million, right? Mm -hmm. Are you going to bet that $40 million on one film or are you going to try to spread it out across 30? You're probably going to go for the latter, right? Mm -hmm. You believe in the business of portfolios and small bets. But what has happened, it used to be you needed 10% of a film's cost to virtually own the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Good Machine, my first production company, had no investment. We raised $1 million to start an international sales company, right? We made about 45 films, and we ended up owning half of those films with the filmmakers along the way, because in those days, you could raise 120% of your film budget, which is actually the general cost of doing business um, through pre-sales, right? Mm -hmm. And if you couldn't do that, the rest you could get in a loan. So you didn't even need equity. The equity people fit, figured that out. There was often a gap of 10 or 15% and they could own those movies. Now, if you want to do it because the pre-sale market for anything but say like a, you know, Stallone type, you know, right. program. The geezer teasers. Yeah. That 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 has collapsed, you know. So if you have money, what are you going to put in? You can't put three million dollars in to own a thirty million dollar movie. You can put three million dollars in to own a three million dollar movie. Are those films selling? No, those films no. aren't selling. But that's like the appetite for the risk. So we've allowed our entire dependent independent system to completely wither, right? And what does that show about our business? That we've had no stu stewardship, that you can't trust the corporate powers to do anything but try to win all the toys in the, the, the sandbox. We've witnessed this total collapse of the market, right? It used to be people like 10 years, you go back and people say, oh, it's Sundance, you know, 90% of the films, 85% of the films sell. Now, 90% don't sell, some because they sold long before they showed up at the festival. It's no longer so, so much a market, but a distribution launch, right? Yeah, but a lot of them go with the dream, and the dream turns into a nightmare. Yeah, because for 40 years, people have been saying, budget for your marketing, budget for your distribution. You know, there was like a little moment in time when I and others believed in a kind of DIY approach, but it didn't work. But still, nobody's still budgeting for their own marketing and distribution. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I started going to Sundance probably 15 years ago. And I'm remembering back in those times, there were probably 10, 15 legitimate independent distributors that were in play on most of the movies that premiered. And this past year, it was 
three. It was the streamers, the three major streamers that buy them, and then maybe three to five potential distributors. And there were so many disaster stories. I mean, I, I use the example of Cat Person, the um, the adaptation of the New Yorker article, which it was a difficult movie, but it came into the festival super hot, was supposed to be a hot acquisition title. Netflix made a lowball offer on it. Nobody else wanted it. It ended up going to some tiny revival distributor that probably paid nothing, released it in like a couple theaters, and now it's on iTunes. Like that is the result for a hot Sundance title most of the time now. It's tragic. And, you know, I, I think you see beacons of hope, you know, um, I, you know, everyone certainly gets excited by, you know, A24 and and Neon. Yeah, are there are the, those are the two that have sort of made it work, right? A24 obviously everybody knows. Neon is a independent distributor backed by a billionaire, but they've had success with Parasite. They get Oscar nominations every year. They, this year they have the Michael Mann movie Ferrari. That's a 110 million dollar movie that's being distributed in the US by a small independent distributor, which says a lot about the state of the film business as well. But are there any distributors beyond those two that are making it work? Making it work is a challenge, right? Because, you know, I think it was announced yesterday how A24 just did an output deal with, with HBO Max. Mm -hmm. You know, Neons, I believe, had a had a deal for a while at Hulu. Mm -hmm. But that's good news. Yeah, those are good news because you mm -hmm. need that, right? And that's like a real challenge when you see a market constriction as we do now, unless a bot, because if those buyers can't uh, then sell and license them for a significant amount to the, the a global streaming platform, their business won't work. And in that same way that the, the, the business methodology, methodologies of those platforms drove exhibitors and territorial distributors out of business without a... Um, Without an output deal, our few remaining, you know, hand, the small handful of remaining independent distributors won't be able to survive either, and they certainly won't be able to ever compete in a in a you know for in a pricing mode at a place like Sundance. Well, it's a chicken and egg problem too, because if you aren't a twenty four and have the track record and the box office success, no streaming service is going to want an output deal with you. If you're Bleecker Street or if you are one of these smaller independents that used to be able to compete and now it's increasingly difficult, what streaming service is going to pay you an output deal? Um, unless you you can uh, target in there as they their you know business goals often align with a specific audience that you can curate to sure Be because like those swaths of quote content are highly still valuable but i think again it's a deal with the devil right that unless the the government steps in and uh, you know votes for increased competition, decreased barriers to entry, you know a return of things like FinCEN, you know across right. the board, the the the, the, the pro competitive rules in media that require exactly. that you to not 
own what you distribute. Yeah. Right. Treating uh, the global streaming platforms as a utility, as they ultimately should be, I think, at this point, uh, making sure that they acquire uh, significant percentages from third party suppliers. Um, unless they do that, it's going to require those that that you know worship at the church of cinema you know to try to build alternative revenue streams without the dependence on that that uh exclusive pay one window to global streaming and ultimately i think we all have to recognize what has happened right you know it was that promise of a of a long tail of access to anything anytime anywhere mm -hmm. but what what occurred instead is this huge you know tsunami of too much all the time that buries anything and reduces everything to a simple transaction a thumbnail click This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay, anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. You know, just to play devil's advocate, if I'm a consumer listening to this, I think perhaps, well, wait a second. I like everything available all the time and the ease of getting a film like May, December on my Netflix subscription, which it would have cost just the same amount to go to a theater. I like that. But I think what people don't realize is that ultimately that system is going to perhaps lead to fewer movies and fewer creative risks taken because the end game for the streaming services is not to be a patron of the arts. It's to generate time spent on the platform and ultimately they are in this prestige business, A, for awards and to lure filmmakers, and B, to potentially have hits that transcend the indie world. But that's not a guarantee. We look at what Ted Sarandos, the head of Netflix, said this past week. He's talking about why they're making fewer films. And he said that they had ramped up. This is his quote. We ramped up at that aggressive pace because we had no access to licensed films. What has happened is that the availability to license has opened up a lot more. And what he's saying is, is that all these other companies that are not Netflix are so desperate to license their movies now because they need money. And when they're licensing Netflix more movies, like big Hollywood blockbuster movies, there's no need for Netflix to be making and acquiring their own movies. And if that continues, it's going to squeeze things further. And ultimately, we get an ecosystem where the streamers have essentially, potentially, killed the independent film business because they were the ones that ate the business themselves. Yeah, well, well said, Matt. Well said. You know, I, I think it's important to realize, though, that, you know, 
Ted Sarandos, everyone that I've ever met is in the film business, first and foremost, because of a deep love of cinema. That is true. That they they all had a film that changed their lives. Mm -hmm. They understand what it is to sit in a darkened room with strangers and have a shared emotional uh, response to what's there, laughing, crying, seeing a grown man cry next to you. <laughs> you know, it's it's you know a, a fantastic unifying experience. Um, yet the the business goals are so different from what was you know formerly known as the film business audience mm -hmm. acquisition retention as we 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 talked about um and that their business is ultimately uh, about time watched and it's a wonderful tool for that we've seen whether it's social media you know how it changes people's you know political opinions and persuasion how people can be persuaded by lies versus truths all of the those things and that tendency if you want to maximize viewing is going to limit choice well you get more viewers by licensing the super mario brothers movie than you do by buying may december you, you get a more uh, of a certain type there are some movies that everybody wants to see, and then there are movies that specific audiences will turn into an event for them. Some of those audiences and and groups much larger than 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 others, but you know the the access to titles is actually been going down. Right, you can't walk into your video store unless you live near Vidiots in L.A. and have and have access to ten thousand titles. Well, iTunes and Amazon, they got everything if you ever want. Most uh, things. Uh, Maybe not the kind of movies you watch. All right, last question. What is Amazon doing in the content business? Big picture. I, I can't ad address that, really, because I've been out of there for, I don't know, three and a half years now, right? But you were there at the beginning. And when I was there, I was kind of shocked by how quickly our uh, our strategies flipped right like virtually mm -hmm. every quarter i thought this was totally unique and once i had opportunity to talk to uh, competitors lo and behold all of those global streaming platforms had that kind of rapid iteration not waiting for the results you know to kind of change who they what audiences they were targeting how they were doing films it was moving super fast well, you were making largely independent style films when you were there, and they have now pivoted to doing much more commercial fare. When I before I went to Amazon, Jeff Bezos had uh, explained the movie business uh, in a piece of uh, beautiful poetry as uh, we make movies to sell shoes, right? And that kind of explained what the whole you know prime strategy was you know which is you know free shipping and tons of other uh yeah. services and you want to satisfy as many customers as possible so you know candy cane lane is certainly going to attract more views than uh cold war or the handmaiden right and you were not making candy cane lane no, I came in with a clear mandate uh, when Roy Price hired me to get make critically acclaimed films that got major festival um, acceptance right. and would win awards. The mistake was like in that plan, I probably I had a five year runway to win an Oscar, and we won three in our first year. So, you know, the the bar got lifted considerably higher.
And now the number, I mean, they're still making movies. They've got a Clooney movie. They've got stuff that they think could be award worthy, uh, but it's a much broader mandate. Do you think Amazon's happy with MGM so far? I think that they're happy with all of that IP that they acquired. Mm -hmm. you, you have to be asleep at the wheel to not see a IP, you know, territorial grab gold rush, you know, that the capitalized, well-capitalized companies have been going after. And I think that led to a huge uh, transformation of why something, you know, like MGM would be pursued in the years after I left versus when I was still there. Like you could see it in short supply, you know, um, and I think it's going to be a really hard thing be for for filmmakers everywhere like that that has further anti-competitive practices in it in that producers, you know, um, in particular, I've always felt are kind of like, you know, the equivalent of you need a pig to find truffles. You know, we as a class would root around in the dirt trying to find the the gems in, in the rough. Right. And, you know, which often meant like we would put five years of our time into developing properties to show that they had value and audience. And now those properties are basically being held. And maybe the studios do well assigning uh, executives and, and producers. Yeah, they don't want outside producers, though. You guys are a nuisance to most of the, <laughs> most of the streamers. God forbid you try to make a great movie. That's a pain <laughs> in the ass. All right, Ted, thanks very much. Enjoy your commentary. And uh, you got a lot of knowledge in there. Thank you. That was a lot of fun, Matt. Likewise. Thank you. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, you excited for The Boy and the Heron? I know a lot of people are. One of my biggest movie holes is that I've never seen Spirited Away. Yeah, it is. This is the Miyazaki movie. He's like the Walt Disney of Japanese animation. Uh, he's getting up there in years. This could be his final film. And it's one of those movies that like, has a built-in audience for it. Like normally you would not think that Japanese animation would do well, but these niche genre plays have actually been doing decent business at the box office this past year. And it's kind of a growth area, this adult animation market. Um, I think this, this movie's tracking is at about 8 million for the weekend. I think this is going to uh, overperform. I know people that are very excited for this movie and, you know, it's not a blockbuster, but I think this movie is going to overperform. It's already done $80 million in Japan. So I think this movie is going to outperform the tracking. And the reviews are through the roof. 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, 92 on Metacritic. My colleague at Puck, we have a new box office writer, Scott Mendelson, who's been on the show. And he wrote a piece this past week about these niche event films where they're not all audience tentpole events that are going to gross a billion dollars, but they have a very targeted audience. He used Beyonce as a perfect example. He used the Godzilla movie that came out that both of which overperformed. And these are reliable people are they're pre-branded for a certain audience and they are perhaps the future of the theater business when these big studio tent poles are being delayed because of the strike 
or the studios are making fewer of them. It's not going to replace that revenue, but it could be, you know, these are all singles, singles and doubles that the theaters can count on. And I think there is going to be an audience for this movie. This is a great thing to talk about, having just spoken with Ted Hope about everything that's going on in the industry. It's the <laughs> <I> perfect <know. laughs> movie. It's true. I guarantee you Ted Hope has seen this movie already uh, or is going to see it this weekend. But uh, we'll see how it does. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank our guest, Ted Hope, producer Craig Horlbeck, and I want to thank you. Our Monday show is going to be on Tuesday next week. we got a special guest, so look for that. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>